Don't worry, dude. We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hello, all listeners. This is Stop Talk Radio. I'm Neil Bradley, your co-host this evening, Joe Quinn. Hi there. Pierre-Lesse Cordon. Bonjour. And Jason Martin. Bonjour. Well, this week's special guest, uh, we are hoping he's still going to come on. We're still trying to get a hold of him. He's Dimitri Olov. Yeah, he's here. Ah. He's here. Okay, good. So we're going to give him a call and get him on the show. The title this week is Lessons from Collapse of USSR for USSA. And it's a topic that our author is very familiar with, not least because he's born in Russia, grew up largely in the US, but then went back to his homeland around the time that just before Russia was uh, before the former Soviet Union uh, came to an end. Yeah, so he lived through those times. Yeah, before, during, and after the collapse. That's right. And he subsequently went back to the U.S. and started to realize, hold on, I'm seeing the same things happening here, and began studying it in in great detail. He's clearly very interested in it. One of the first articles on SALT about this topic we have from 2006, and he was very astute in what he said was going on in terms of comparing it to what had happened in Russia. So... He's not with us yet, but we're going to call him shortly. And uh, that's a very useful experience because uh, such global collapses are something very remote for most of us. So having someone who went through it, who lived it, and can testify about it can bring very valuable data. Yeah. He knows what it is. Yeah. It's actually inspired him to research quite a lot in, in history and in other countries. Specifically the economics of it, but it's, his writing is more than just the sort of facts and figures and the data. Um, although it is, he does describe it in a very interesting way. You see the same pattern happening. It's ABC. And it, today we hear about, you know, this measure is being introduced and everything will be fine. <laughs> the actual political sloganeering that's used to in, introduce this reassurance for people is almost phrased the same way. Uh, so this is my three-point plan to exactly. fix it all. Yeah. yeah, the current soothing declarations made by politicians remind me of this uh, this movie, a French movie, where you have this guy who's falling from a skyscraper. And uh, every level, every... Uh, every floor. Every floor, yeah, thank you. Every floor he passes during his fall, he's telling himself, so far, everything is all right. So far, everything is all right. Yeah, yeah, and it keeps going, and it returns to him, doesn't it? He's in free fall. Yeah, exactly. Did you guys see? Okay. So, just for the record, Dimitri's got three books published, and he's got a fourth one coming out soon. 
First one is Reinventing Collapse, the Soviet Example and American Prospects. Then there's the five stages of collapse, a survivor's toolkit, and absolutely positive. The collection of essays is one that's going to be published soon. It's called Communities That Abide. Like the dude. Because like the, the dude. dude abides. <laughs> <laughs> he also he's got a great blog as well, Club Club or Love. Yeah, I was he I was publishes essays weekly. I, he's got a really approachable writing style. I, I liked it quite a bit. I read several of his articles and he kind of keeps a, a light-hearted, uh, tongue-in-cheek tone with it while he's still talking about some pretty serious matters. Yeah. Um, he had a really yeah. good one about um, the basic scenarios, like these series of scenarios, like the, the catastrophic apocalyptic scenarios, one of the kind of dystopian uh, world police kind of scenarios as well. And they were all kind of... Uh, kind of right on. And I, I had the sinking feeling when I read it that the... That it's not really like <clears throat> pick one. It's probably going to be like a cluster of a whole bunch of them all at once that are then going to lead directly to a cluster of, of another one. I mean, yeah. Um, you, you get the feeling his audience has been pretty mainstream to date, certainly. And he gets a lot of flack for being a dooms, doomsayer. Because they're coming out of from a position of, what do you mean, everything's fine? Well, here's the problem with that that I have, right? I mean, history is replete with examples of basically the catastrophic fall of every single major civilization that has ever existed in the last 10,000 years. All of them have completely and totally collapsed into utter and terrible anarchy, Right. Why would anyone think that this one's going to be any different? The average lifespan of most, you know, sort of nations or nation states is at best a couple of hundred years before they, they might reform a name. You know, sure, yeah. Athens reformed plenty of times in name, and Rome too, but Rome had a series of collapses. Yeah, there were many the Romans. Final, yeah, they kept calling themselves Romans, but they weren't really, <laughs> you know? You know, maybe the reason why civilizations or the current western u.s civilization doesn't think it will collapse it's one of the very reasons why civilizations of empire collapse yeah. because this illusion of infinite power right. of specialness of we are elected we are we will not collapse we are invincible and uh and by the way i have a question uh, to the americans here so to jason in particular <laughs> I'm the only one here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Neil, you were saying that um, Olaf is having uh, problems with the mainstream audience because... Yeah. Uh, hang on a second. Hi. Dimitri, are you there? Yes, I am. Oh. Hi, Dimitri. Welcome to the show. Welcome, Dimitri. Hey. Welcome. Hey. Uh, well, we got the show started and we've introduced you. So all that remains now is to say welcome aboard. It's good to have you here. Can you hear us? Yes, and, and I hear a delayed version of you as well. Okay. Uh, okay, well, we'll try to say what we've got to say and then give you a couple of seconds to, to respond. Still an echo. Shall we try to okay. call again? Do you want to try and call us? Dimitri, I just sent you, <coughs> I just sent you a, a link where you can just click on a Skype button to call in. Uh, that's not going to work. No. 
Um, actually, maybe if I cancel that, it'll get rid of the echo. Okay, try that. Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't have uh, you shouldn't have that page open uh, while you're online. On yes, Skype. I closed it. Okay. okay, I think we're fine now. Okay, excellent. Ah. Sort of that. Super. Actually, I was asking a question to uh, yeah. to Jason, who's American, but you, Dimitri, uh, you've been living in the U.S. for a while. So uh, I was talking about this. In the U.S., the mainstream opinion, to what extent are they aware of the possibility of a collapse? Or is this American dream all pervasive and do they think their empire will uh, last forever? Uh, well, I, I don't think that... Uh it's uh, allowed here to uh, to inform people of the possibility of, of collapse uh, using any of the uh, the corporate the, the mainstream outlets which are owned by a handful of companies and they have a company policy which is uh, you're not really allowed to do anything that might cause people to stop shopping or taking on more debt and things like that yeah. so um, people like me who uh, try to uh, look at the future and look at the past and 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 see uh, how uh, collapses in other places uh, uh, can teach us something about the collapse that's going to happen here. Uh, we don't get a lot a lot of play here. So I I run a blog and you know that's still allowed, but um, there there are absolutely no mainstream outlets available to me. Uh, no mainstream publisher would publish my books. Um, uh, I have, on occasion, tried to get on um, on radio stations, um, uh, but most of that is uh, for these kind of fringe entertainment shows that right. that are not really for serious people. Um, so there's really there, there is no way to inform Americans, even if they wanted to be informed. But the other thing is that I I, I don't think a lot of Americans want to be informed. And you say. I run a blog that is still allowed. Does mm -hmm. it mean, you say you, I run a, a blog that is still allowed. Does it mean that you envision a collapse that is not only an economic collapse, that, but that will also include some kind of police state? Well, the police state is there. It, it's just that, um, um, well, for instance, if I was actually uh, publishing hard data about uh, what the government is doing, the, the United States government is doing, uh, I would be shut down in a second because I would be uh, labeled a security risk. Uh, the fact is that all I publish is opinion, and that is still allowed. So you're saying that you you have information uh, that would be <laughs> kind of make it a a question oh, of national oh, security? Oh, no, no, perish, perish the thought. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know anything. Okay, at least that's what you're telling Good. <laughs> Well, you're, you're safe. As a result, or indirect benefit is that your writing is very uh, approachable, understandable, and you do include a lot of basic facts in there. I've been reading the book, um, The Five Stages of Collapse, and you just start from the premise with, look, economic collapse is inevitable. It's a matter of time. Here's why. Can you expand on that for a second, just in terms of how an an economy just cannot grow and grow and grow. Uh, well, uh, the fact is that the economy has stopped growing. Um, and and uh, the U.S. economy has been uh, looking like it's sort of like a corpse that moves. Um, it looks like it's alive because of the 
uh, incredible explosion in the levels of indebtedness, the level of debt. So this debt is just exploding. It's, it's, it's gone astronomic. And the fact is that the federal government in the United States overspends it, its tax revenues by a third. Now, nobody will tell you that this is sustainable, that this can go on forever. But on the other hand, nobody can tell you for how long it can uh, go on. It's this uh, sort of strange levitation act. Um, uh, all of the money in circulation now is just fake money, you know, that, that's been thought into existence. It's not really supported by anything. So at some point, there will be uh, a crisis of confidence. Nobody will uh, trust the value of the money. Nobody will, banks will stop trusting each other. You know, banks don't trust their customers, but they trust each other even less. And trust between banks is necessary in order for any sort of good to be shipped from one country in the world to another country in the world. That's the only thing that glues the world together is letters of credit issued by one bank in one country that's honored by another bank in another country. As soon as that stops working, the flow of goods uh, from one continent to another, including such things as crude oil, uh, will stop abruptly. And uh, uh, that is really the, the Achilles heel of, of this global economy that's uh, uh, very fine-tuned at this point with uh, you know, very thin inventories, just-in-time delivery of everything. And um, uh, these sorts of things cause supply chain disruptions, which... We've, we've already had examples of them. For instance, after the floods in, in Thailand, um, it was it, for a while impossible to, to uh, manufacture cars in pretty much anywhere in the world because of certain missing components that were only sourced in that one country. Um, after the tsunami in, in, in Japan, a similar mm -hmm. thing happened with the, uh, I think, the, uh, the injection um, circuitry, which was only... Yeah. Manufactured in one factory in Japan for the entire world market. So things like that cause knock-on effects, where something doesn't get delivered, and as a result, something else doesn't get delivered, etc. And and it it grows and expands from there. And so that that's really the scenario that we are pretty much waiting for a direct consequence of of runaway debt. Uh, you know, the right now there's absolutely nothing that can be done to constrain this generation of debt. It'll just run its course, and at the end of it, there won't be such a thing as the U.S. dollar anymore. And what is tricky with the U.S. is that uh, it has a very special status. I mean, if the U.S. was a normal country or a citizen, it would have been declared bankrupt a long time ago. But here, the U.S. economy is so uh, big, prevalent, and uh, the amount of the quantity of dollar owed by other countries is so huge that if the U.S. go down, it will have major repercussions on the other countries. So how do you envision a, a collapse of the U.S.? How, how do the creditors, how do the other countries envision it? Or we try to manage it, to cope with it. Well, uh, the dollar will be devalued very dramatically. There will be a bout of hyperinflation. <clears throat> And, and the creditors will be paid in worthless dollars, in, in notional dollars, uh, because uh, the U.S. will simply comp uh, continue printing money. That's the, that's the easiest thing to do. It's, it's just that, um, you know, that there two, two, it'll, it'll be a train wreck. One part of the train wreck will be everybody in the world dumping dollars, which will devalue the dollars. And the other part of the train wreck will be the Federal Reserve 
issuing uh, just countless trillions of dollars, basically fake, unsupported by anything, uh, in order to, to remain to, on paper, to remain solvent, to, to, to be able to uh, continue floating its debt. But, but the end result of it is the bout of hyperinflation and lack of access to imports, because suddenly nobody will be uh, ready to accept dollars as payment for anything. Okay, and we're kind of already seeing this internationally, at least. We hear about countries busy buying up gold. Is that part and parcel of this? Well, yes, there was a, for, for the past couple of years, there's been this concerted effort on the part of uh, uh, Western U.S. and Western governments and banks to suppress the price of gold, to make yeah. it artificially low, in order to make their currencies look like they're worth more than they actually do. Now, strangely enough, or not strangely, but um, perversely, um, what this resulted in is a flow of physical gold from west to east, from from um, from New York and London to Moscow and Beijing and a few other places. So that suddenly now you have a block of countries which uh, are poised to start trading with each other using their own currencies and uh, their own currencies be supported by gold. And... Um, the end result of that will be that Europe and the United States will be frozen out of this new economy, which is not dollar-based. Hmm. And um, there are also those countries, for example, China, who are reducing the percentage of reserve they hold, the percentage of dollars, and uh, getting other currency and gold, as you mentioned. Do you think they made this shift in order to provoke the collapse of the U.S. or in order to to be ready when the collapse happens? Um, well, China is, is not uh, the sort of player that provokes. Um, they have um, what's called the doctrine of small steps. Um, they, they continually move in a certain direction at a very controlled rate. So they buy gold when, whenever the price of gold dips, for instance. Um, they're negotiating deals with Russia to lead the U.S. dollar out of, uh, of their trade with Russia. Um, they've negotiated these bilateral trade agreements with uh, many other countries. Um, and, and so every step of the way, they, they decouple from, from the American economy, they decouple from the U.S. dollar, and they create their own sphere of influence, which the Americans cannot interfere with. And, and that has been their strategy uh, for quite a while now, and, and this is just another another part of that strategy, another step in that direction. Okay. You, you've written that, maybe I misunderstood it, but I have it here in my notes, as that usury is the root of financial collapse. C can it be that simple? Maybe you can expand on that. I mean, China, for example, if it loans to somebody, they'll expect the principal and some in return, right? Well, yes, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> debt to the power of time is, is, is the formula that is used throughout everywhere. Um, whenever there's, uh, you know, lending, there's lending at interest, um, except in Muslim countries where it is uh, a, a crime to do so. So there, there is lending, but, but you cannot lend at interest. But in most other places in the world, that is prevalent right now. The, now, the problem with that formula is that the growth of, of debt 
then outpaces every physical process in the universe. So it can only be sustained in a period of uh, continuous growth, exponential growth. And, um, you know, you, you can't have that sort of unrestrained growth um, um, without a collapse resulting directly from it. So if you exploit a resource and, and the rate at which you exploit it grows exponentially to keep up with the debt, uh, then at some point uh, you will not be able to increase the, the rate at which that resource is being exploited and, and the result will be a collapse. Uh, that debt will no longer be payable. Bankruptcy. Uh, you know, it's, there, there, there are other analogous things that, for instance, can go on in a, in a human body. What happens if you get infected with a bacterium and the bacterium expands at that at that sort of rate, expand, exponential expansion. Well, you die. Um, so debt to, debt to the power of time, the formula behind all of finance, collapse pretty much built right into it. Mm. It is the direct effect of using that formula. How do you, I guess it's a difficult question, uh, always difficult to make predictions, but how do you envision this uh, collapse of the U.S. empire? Uh, what are the sequences that might uh, happen? Uh, what will tip it over um, is, is very difficult to predict. It could be a number of things. It could be an economic shock. Uh, it could be a military defeat. Um, that's one of the things that many commentators have thought about because, you know, the United States spends more on quote-unquote, defense than any, any other country in the world. But what it gets in return for that is uh, a military that cannot win in any conflict. Um, they, they attack the weakest countries they can find, and, and they still can't prevail. And, mm -hmm. and most, the most that they can actually do is um, um, assassinate people. That's still something that they are pretty good at. So they have they, what's called drone warfare, which is basically that you... You know, you, you fly these planes, these robot planes, and you use them to assassinate people. So uh, that kind of assassination and, um, you know, death squads and, you know, snipers taking out people, um, that, that's something that they're still good at. But that's just a, a way to destroy things. They're also very good at bombing countries. They can carpet bomb a country to, to oblivion. And, you know, Americans have absolutely no moral qualms about doing that. So they, you know, they, they actually enjoy watching shock and awe and, you know, Baghdad being destroyed on television and things like that. Mm. You know, earlier, um, Laos, a country that most Americans can't find on a map, was bombed to near oblivion. Uh, and, you know, they didn't care about that either. But all of those tactics are basically tactics to blow things up, not to, not to win the peace. But, they, but Americans always fail at winning the peace. Um, mm. All they can do is destroy. So that's not a winning strategy. And, and uh, at some point, they'll, they'll come up against um, a real military, Russia or China, or one of the other countries that is not to be trifled with militarily. And this, this military that, that cannot win against even Somalia will suddenly find itself uh, in over its head and will suffer a defeat, which will be... Um, you know, a very psychologically, very profound uh, event that, that may actually tip the country in, in the direction of uh, outright political collapse from that point on. 
but that that's just one scenario there are many possible many other possibilities do you um I assume I assume you would agree that the the ruling elite in the U.S. thinking that they're kind of precipitating a collapse, or that they may be precipitating a collapse uh, by way of their actions. Um, what what do they think they're doing? Are they well, aware? Some of them are. Um, isn't that they, a bit? Isn't that a bit kind of self 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 defeating or self destructive? Well, they're they're self destructive people so right. uh, if they behave self-destructively that shouldn't be a surprise uh-huh. um, a lot of them are very much cocooned and, and uh, you know they they don't really reason like people it's almost like uh, a brain parasite have take has taken over their brain and and they beha- behave not like people but like bags of money mm. so they do whatever it is that's that their bag of money is telling them to do to make that bag of money bigger it sounds insane it is insane, but they're really like they're they're really almost automatons on that level. Now, mm. among them, there are people who have this idea that this is all going to come tumbling down, and a lot of them prepare in in various ways. Like if they can afford it, they'll they'll buy a private island somewhere, mm. put an airstrip on there, float in containers with years worth of supplies, and build a bunker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a sort of bunker mentality. It's very pervasive and, and quite popular. And, and a lot of people are making those sorts of preparations. They, will, they buy ranches in Montana, even though they live in New York, mm-hmm. and, and are ready to evacuate themselves when, when things stop, stop, stop going their way. Uh, so there's quite a bit of that going on. Yeah. I saw a Forbes article recently sort of, it wasn't taking it seriously, like we've just, you said about the mainstream media in the U.S. So it was an article about people kitting out, retrofitting their pretty palatial homes, basically into bunkers and fortresses with all the latest gadgets for security and uh, long-term food supply, alternative heating supply, etc. But that popped into my head when I was reading your book because one of the fundamental things you describe in a transition or post-collapse scenario is the importance of trust among people or people you can trust mm-hmm. having a network and so on. And I realized those people are screwed because they have all the gadgets, but they're missing the number one resource they need. Others they can rely on. Oh yes, absolutely. And, and, and if you look at it, uh, uh, they, they, they really, they, they can only stay alive as long as they have their bodyguards. But what if they can't pay their body, bodyguards anymore? Hmm. Or if their bodyguards reveal that all they have to do is realize that all they have to do is shoot the master and take over his palatial estate. Mm. Or not even shoot the master. I mean, it it doesn't have to be that brutal. It's just that, you know, it's kind of a turn the tables sort of thing. It's like, well, you don't, do you want to stay alive? Well, then I will give you orders, not the other way around. Um, And and I'm I'm sure that plenty of that will happen. Um, So, um, uh, you know, that, these people who think that they're ultra secure, um, they, there are certain assumptions that they, they can't question because uh, if they did, then they would become incredibly insecure mm-hmm. and would have, would have immediate mental issues. Mm-hmm. Is there a direct correlation between uh, the amount of billionaires and super wealthy in the U.S. and this possible 
kind of economic collapse of the USA? Well, there there is a gigantic disconnect. Um, what what's going on in the United States is that large parts of the population are pretty much being disenfranchised and and are are being lost. Uh, an entire generation uh, that graduated um, with a lot of student debt, but un- unable to find any sort of employment, that, any any sort of use of their education. Um, it's pretty pretty much just being lost. They're dropping out of society, or you know, if they're forming a society, it's 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 some other society, not this one. Mm-hmm. And there's a complete disconnect between that and the people who are still sort of on the inside and the shrinking core of the economy that are still doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some people who are doing extremely well, and and they congregate in uh, the few prosperous cities, um, places like New York and and Brooklyn and, and Boston and, and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That are still doing well, but even there, it's 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 sort of uh, this constant social atrophy where the, the the number of people doing well get becomes smaller and smaller every year, and uh, more and more people, you know, they they just can't do it anymore, and and they can't afford the rent, so they disappear, mm. they disappear from the landscape. Uh, I was in San Francisco a little while ago and uh, uh, walked by a pet a pet um, adoption center. And it was full of people giving up their pets because they were being forced to move out of San Francisco because they had lost their job. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's sort of a sign of the times. That's what people are forced to do. So, I mean, just I'm just trying to get to the the heart of, like, in terms of economics, to the core of the reason why there may be, or why the American economy is tanking, uh, you know, why what, what's the what's the core reason why that is happening right now what has what have the elite been doing over the past 20 or 30 years or longer that has caused uh the the country to be on this kind of knife edge and um is there was it, is there a different way that they could have done it and why didn't they do it why didn't they invest in a more sustainable i'm assuming there's a way that they could have created or managed a sustainable economy uh but apparently they haven't so what have they been doing? Well, basically what they've been doing is they've been nurturing various types of uh, parasites, gigantic parasites. Um, so they've been, uh, they've been nurturing this medical industry, which is the most expensive in the world, but provides uh, uh, similar benefits in terms of life expectancy as Cuba, which spends uh, about 5% of what the Americans spend per capita on, mm. on health care. Um, so the medical system is basically a ransom system. Uh, it's, it's a scheme for, for confiscating people's savings when they get sick. Uh, that works really well. Uh, the military is another giant parasite, mm. uh, biggest in the world. And, and uh, you know, the, the strategy, for instance, the strategy of expanding NATO to encroach and surround Russia, mm-hmm. no, not, not a very good strategy if you're shooting for security because uh, – Last thing anybody wants is for Russia to become insecure enough to, to actually start acting out. Um, so that, that, that happens because there's money in it. Mm. Every time another country joins NATO, the uh, U.S. Uh, military can uh, ask for more money. Mm. Uh, and there's, there's a never-ending list of, of, of similar, um, uh, similar things. You know, the, pr- the prison population in the U.S. is, is the largest 
in the world. The largest percentage of people in jail is in the U.S. Um, 5% of the world's population, 25% of the prison population in the world. Um, Ten times more uh, uh, mentally ill people are in prisons than in mental hospitals in the U.S. So, um, you know, all of those things, that the, the, the prison complex is, is being treated as some, some sort of a profit center. Um, and it's true that it does make a profit for the privatized part of the prison. You know, mm. a lot of prisons in the U.S. are, are for profit. And, um, and they also make money off of uh, the prisoners because they use them as slaves. A uh, few people realize that there are more black slaves in the United States now than there were in, in the South before the Civil War. Yep. It's just that they're not on plantations Crikey. anymore. They're, they're in prisons. So all of these things, that's what Americans are doing. Um, is, mm. is, building, is building these gigantic parasites that, that, that rob them, that, that's, that's, that steal their energy. Okay, that suck all of the wealth and the productivity of the American people into, you know, to the top of, of the pyramid and just sit on it. And then they, they go around the world, well, they use the American taxpayer money to, to finance the military that goes around the world in the service of uh, these same parasites to try and steal the resources of other countries to, to kind of prop up their, their faltering economy or to, or to fill their coffers even further. And I suppose the point there is that, is that the planet is a finite place. And as we've seen in Russia and Ukraine, it doesn't always go their way. Well, yes, they, they, you know, they, they, destroyed, um, uh, they destroyed Libya, uh, stole Libya's gold. Um, and then they tried to do the same thing with Syria, but couldn't. And so then they actually destroyed, well, they went a long way towards destroying uh, Ukraine, stole mm-hmm. Ukrainian gold. Um, but I don't know what's next. I mean, there, there, isn't, there, there aren't any more soft targets. Yeah. It takes a long time to drive a country to, to, to a state where, it, you know, Americans can actually just blunder in and do what they do and, and get the results they want. And I'd say Ukraine, after being robbed for 22 years and dismantled and, you know, riddled with these uh, oligarchs, um, it was a, a sufficiently disrupted place so that they could manipulate it. And, you know, it was, a, it was such a playground for the CIA and other special services uh, for years and years that they could stage manage a revolution. Mm-hmm. There aren't that many places in the world left where they could do that. Or where they haven't already done it. <laughs> or where, where they haven't already done it, yeah. Another factor you mentioned in the reventing collapse is that uh, unlike Russia, the USA today have almost no more production tools. Everything has been offshored. So if I understand your reasoning correctly, once the dollar collapse, the USA will be the U.S. would be un- unable to get any good. Well, yes. Basically, it's a non-productive economy. They, they went in for services instead of actual production. The, the number of manufacturing jobs continues to shrink. Um, and, um, you know, part of that was, was uh, you know, driven by, uh, by the idea of making bigger profits by uh, offshoring uh, uh, production and part of it was uh, this political desire to destroy trade unions. So uh, it was politically inspired to a large extent. But the end result is that it, this is a very hollow economy. There's there's really there's no production going on here. There's just consumption and printing money. What the U.S. produces is dollars. Mm-hmm. You can't help but feel that the 
the form the collapse will take will be very abrupt. Although it is happening, I suppose, there must be a, not must, who knows, I'm predicting here, but you can just see a point where it's that one next crisis that complete chaos breaks out. I mean, could it be that bad? Well, it it's that bad sometimes in various places. So that, uh, for instance, when uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, disrupted the delivery of uh, refined petroleum products to the East Coast, um, suddenly it was all chaos. Suddenly people were just doing battle at, 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 at gas stations. You know, there was uh, violence and, and, and all sorts of horrors. But then as the supply gets restored, everything goes back to normal. Now, um, if the supply isn't restored, if there's a disruption of that sort and the supply isn't restored within some finite amount of time, then uh, a certain point of no return is, is reached. The situation spirals out of control so that it can't be restored any, any longer. It no longer becomes possible. So I, I think that uh, they, will, they will manage to hold it together in, in some places, like inside the Beltway in Washington, I think uh, New York, all of these uh, super rich places will, will be able to spend their way out of it somehow for at least a while. But uh, I foresee that huge chunks of the country will suddenly become uh, sort of no-go zones where nobody will go there, nobody will know what's going on. It'll they'll just go dark. In your uh, yeah, in in your book, which is an excellent book, actually, reinventing collapse, the Soviet experience and American prospects. You um, you say that the so the collapse of the United States seems about as unlikely now as the collapse of the Soviet Union seemed in 1985. So I mean that kind of speaks to what uh, Neil was just saying is that um, in the Soviet Union it happened very quickly and unexpectedly. Well, I it, it wasn't entirely unexpected for most people even. Uh, for most people, yes, but mm. um, I, I think it, you could actually. Uh, see the, the, the incapacity of, of, of the, the Soviet government to, to compensate for what was facing, which is uh, uh, basically trade imbalance that, uh, uh, that, that made it go bankrupt. Um, and you can see the same thing in the United States, except here uh, they actually print the money mm-hmm. into existence. So uh, the Soviet Union pretty much ceased to exist when it ran out of money, mm-hmm. as soon as it ran out of money. Whereas the United States ran out of money a long time ago, but is uh, using this clever trick of, of robbing the rest of the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how long can that go on? Nobody really knows. But, um, you know, if, if three years ago people were talking about the, the petrodollar and, um, you know, thought that, you know, that that there were problems with it, potentially, Mm. theoretically. Now nobody thinks that these problems are potential or theoretical. You know, there's there's going to be a a gas deal between China and Russia being signed in in Mm. the next few days. Really, really large deal that cuts out the United States from a large chunk of trade. Uh, Russia is setting up systems for trading its oil without using the U.S. dollar, cutting the, the U.S. Federal Reserve out of that equation. So, so these, these things are actually going on. Yeah. Um, and and uh, the, the sorts of 
tactics that the Federal Reserve now uses are basically, um, you know, very thinly veiled despair is what it looks like. So it looked like Russia dumped $100 billion worth of U.S. Treasury notes, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. And uh, those notes were bought up by, quote, unquote, Belgium. Now, a Belgium's uh, entire economy is only three times that amount. So where would they suddenly get that much money? Well, obviously, Belgium is just being used as a front for yeah. money that was printed into existence in order to snap up these, these treasury notes. Mm. And who printed them into existence? Well, of course, the Federal Reserve. So um, as that continues to happen, there will be a larger and larger pool of, of notional money that uh, isn't really useful in any capacity. It's, it's money that is said to exist, but if anybody ever tries to use it for anything, it'll, it'll turn out to be worthless. Yeah, like a subprime loan or mortgage. That's insane that a, a whole country's economy is being used to launder bad debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It's a death sentence, the and Belgium being the nexus of NATO in in Europe and the EU and the the, the center of EU Brussels, it's not surprise that uh, Belgium was used as a front to buy this uh, uh, bad bad debt. That's where the that's where NATO's headquarters. <clears throat> Maybe they stored the cash in, in in shape, supreme headquarters of the Allied powers in Europe and outside malls in Belgium. There, you know. Yeah. yeah, they put them in the nuclear silos there. Yeah. <laughs> and now, Dimitri, we're talking about the perspective of a collapse in the U.S. And I suppose for most U.S. citizens and for most Westerners, a collapse is something very remote. We live in a, in a world of overabundance of goods and services. Uh, we don't know. We cannot even imagine what, what is a day a day without electricity, without running water, without sewer system, without food. But you, on the other hand, you've experienced during your, your stay in Russia what it is to face scarcity. So can you describe in what it is to live daily with a, into a major crisis? Well, I, uh, I, I was there at various times as, as uh, events ran their course. So... Uh, in, in, 19, uh, in 1989, I was there and things seemed relatively normal by Soviet standards. And then in the summer of 1990, things were no longer normal because uh, uh, most of the, the, the shops were empty or closed and there, it was very difficult to find anything to eat. And most of the people uh, were out in the country trying to grow some food or, or hunting or fishing or something because... Uh, there was the, the official economy basically ceased to exist to a large extent. And then a few years later, I was there in 1993, uh, and that, that was a, a, the really dire time when there was hyperinflation and, and uh, um, the, the value of the ruble was uh, really, really low so that, uh, you know, it translated into dollars. The average salary uh, was less than $1 per month. Um, and... Um, then uh, a few years later, there was still a lot of inflation, but there, were, there was a thriving private market system and lots of mafia activity uh, that, that had replaced the government. So the police were sort of non-existent, but there were these thugs running around um, with baseball bats and, and knives. There weren't even that many guns yet. Um, 
kind of terrorizing the population, but at the same time uh, maintaining some semblance of order and allowing these uh, Im- improvised market-based mechanisms to function to some extent. Um, and then um, that ran its course, and I, I didn't go back for 13 years. I, I, I was there uh, for the entire winter last year, and it's a different country altogether. It's, it's, it's like day and night. So Russia now is on, on a continuous upswing, and um, it, it, it's better than it has ever been. It's, it's, it's richer, it's more powerful, it's more competently run, and the changes are just really dramatic. Um, uh, really, you know, impressive that so much progress was made in so little time. Um, really, in 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 just a little over a decade. Hmm. Um. Again, in your in your book, you make some uh, good points, uh, very practical points about because um, obviously the topic is about the potential kind of collapse you know, in some form or other, but perhaps. Uh, what will happen most quickly and most unexpectedly is an economic collapse. And you um, you talk about uh, <clears throat> what people should do and what they should think about. First of all, they should think about the prospect of a collapse, and uh, they should uh, consider each important thing in their lives and be, pre- be prepared to answer two very important questions: Is it collapse proof? And if it is not, what can I do to make it collapse proof? Um. For you, I mean, even in your own <coughs> preparations, <coughs> I'm not calling you a prepper, by the way, but in your own preparations for this, I'm assuming you've taken or made some preparations. What are the things that you focus on in terms of uh, preparing for such an event? Well, I don't know that I, I can uh, present myself as, you know, somebody, something that, uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, people should emulate, uh, you know, to each his own, I would say. Yeah. Well, but, since you've studied it, though, I mean, I suppose your yours would be a good example of them. Um, well, the one, things one that I've experimented with, uh, um, and you know, experimented with successfully, is um, really downsizing my existence and getting rid of uh, everything that is superfluous. Uh-huh. Uh, of learning to live comfortably on very little money, hmm. um, and uh, giving up quite a few things. Like I, you know, I gave up a house. I live on a boat now. Um, and uh, if we do get a house, it'll probably be somewhere in, in the tropics in Central America, and it won't be a very extensive one. Um, and, um, you know, just riding a bicycle instead, that works pretty well for me. Uh, living on a sailboat and, and uh, learning how to do everything that I need on a sailboat by myself, um, that gives me, first of all, uh, makes it unnecessary to pay rent. Mm-hmm. Um, and And... Because I don't have to pay rent, I don't really have to 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 keep a job. Um, you know, most of most of what people earn in in the United States and in a lot of places, Boston especially where I am, goes towards paying rent. Um, so I got rid of that, and and uh, uh, the mobility that I've acquired as a result has has really freed up a lot of options. Um, hmm. So that if things are comfortable, I can be in in in, in any place I want, but uh, if things uh, suddenly turn dire, then I basically have an escape. Hmm. How, do you produce, how do you produce energy on your sailboat? It's got a diesel engine, which is uh, u- useful for getting 
um, you know, in and out of harbors. Um, and uh, solar panels and a wind generator are enough to keep the, the lights and the communications running, which is really all that's needed. Okay. Uh, in your book, Reinventing Collapse, and I quote you here, you wrote, when faced with a collapsing economy, one should stop thinking of wealth in terms of money. Access to actual physical resources and assets, as well as intangibles such as connections and relationships, quickly becomes much more valuable than mere cash. Can you explain uh, those two points, having assets and having a, a network? Well, uh, usually the first thing that, that gets disrupted is, is commerce, money, money-based commerce. So you swipe, you swipe your card and nothing happens, or um, the cash that you have is suddenly worthless. Now, uh, if you actually know people who have stockpiles of the things that you need and have some stockpiles of your own or have access to resources, then you can trade on those resources. So, uh, you know, a, a stack of $100 bills is suddenly worthless, but uh, if you have lots of copper wire, then you can exchange that copper wire for something else that you need, mm. something that you might eat, for instance. That's the way that, that people need to start thinking is what, what do I have access to that does not require money? Mm. Uh, is that the kind of way it worked? And uh, did you notice that, ha that happening in, uh, in Russia post-collapse uh, after you know, hyperinflation and money not really being worth anything that people kind of quite quickly turned to barter? And... Yes, and, and uh, Russian, even state enterprises, um, used barter very extensively um, in, in all sorts of interesting ways and uh, have become so efficient at it that now there's a, this Russian way of doing business that, has, uh, that is becoming extremely widespread around the world. So when, when uh, Medvedev or Putin, they fly around the world and they sign trade deals with mm. various countries, mm -hmm. a lot of those deals are barter deals. Mm. They're not denominated in money. Mm. That's interesting because that's what uh, Chavez did that quite a lot in South America uh, with between Venezuela and you know exchanging oil for animals or crops or I mean it that's seems right such a more <clears throat> rational logical thing to do you know well yes it's a very very successful model and and uh, it it really uh, you know it always existed it, it's just that it it, it became very prominent uh, during the 90s in Russia where uh, there wasn't ready access to any sort of finance that, mm -hmm. that people could rely on. And so they, they turned to barter instead. And you don't see the, the U.S. government uh, engaging in that kind of a, a policy post-collapse then? Well, um, they might. But the problem here is that um, the financial regulations in the U.S. are um, such that you can't really use barter. Uh -huh. Everything has to be denominated in dollars. Mm, yeah, the almighty dollar. Yeah. <clears throat> Another question about barter. <clears throat> Sorry. You described the post-collapse Russia as being plagued with a thirds and a mafia with a quite a high level of insecurity and violence. How do you ensure that when you have, for example, copper wires that you want to trade for? food, for example, how are you sure you will not be robbed 
uh, you will not be a victim of violence. It won't be stolen. Um, how did it work in, in Russia? Well, basically, uh, both parties have to pay for um, some organization that provides them with uh, security. And, um, you know, typically it's, it's some, some mafia organization, some illegal organization um, uh, that doesn't actually do anything except maybe kill people if they have to. Um, and, but they can kill people very readily. Um, and so you have your thugs, and they have their thugs. And so they know they're in on your deal. They, they know what's going on. If, if, if one of the parties decides to uh, not fulfill its obligations under the deal, then the, the two groups of thugs, they have issues with each other. And they get together and they sort it out. And, uh, and as a result of that, the, 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 usually the, the, you know, the person who lost money on the deal gets compensated. And the person who caused that money to be lost is, is punished in some very severe way. So that, that was, that, that was how, how, how it all functioned. Basically, there were these enforcers that specialized in dispensing violence, and uh, they uh, defended their honor through violence because that, that, was their, that, that was their tradable commodity. It was their honor, their reputation. And uh, eventually, they, uh, they were legalized, and then they were uh, absorbed uh, or outcompeted by, by the Russian government. Wow. Um, because the Russian government started providing the same services more cheaply. <laughs> wow. Well, that's, I'm kind of flawed here. I have a, a question that may be naive, but do you have in mind some examples in Russia where, I don't know, big families or neighborhood or some kind of communities organized themselves and uh, provided this uh, security? Or maybe they had uh, arm, arms or they had a group of men who who was fulfilling this uh, security task? I don't have any examples like that. No, there, there, there was basically that, you know, the regular people, just normal regular people living their lives, are not highly specialized in dispensing violence. The violent entrepreneurs in Russia, they were basically apart from the general population and above it. And yes, they did figure out which district belong or which street belong, belong to which person they they fought battles over turf but they were these were not battles with the general population the general population was basically there to to feed them to provide for them wow yeah but it sounds brutal but i mean it could have been a lot worse uh, in an article dimitri wrote um it's called Closing the Collapse Gap. The USSR was better prepared for collapse. He put some examples of what was going on in Russia in the 90s side by side with the current more or less situation in the US. And it's a great article to me because you don't even need to say what one could expect in the equivalent situation. You can see that it's much worse. For example, Russia came into this crisis with a very well-educated population Everyone effectively ended up owning their own home. There was great public transport. They weren't reliant on their own car and therefore energy to fuel it. And so on and so on, such that 
or could have been much worse, was mitigated. So I guess the, what I'm getting to here is in the U.S., the, the, the potential there for a far worse scenario that will totally floor you is, uh, is on the cards, huh? Well, yes, that is my basic thesis. And uh, that's why when people ask me what, what is there to be done, um, my answer is uh, leave the country. Well, yeah, I saw that on your blog, actually. Leave the country. That's the answer. But I wanted to get back to the mafia thing because um, it's kind of this gross naivete that people have about how things kind of function, that a mafia is a kind of impromptu government, basically, because yeah. the, the government basically gets paid by you ultimately to to be violent in a certain sense. Now, of course, as it gets very big and you know does a lot of violence, pretty soon it doesn't have to do so much to maintain itself, but it still can. And a mafia basically does the same thing. I mean, we have words for it. We call it extortion when it's a mafia. We call it taxes when it's a, a government. But essentially, essentially, you pay your taxes so that the police will come and, and pick up anybody who robs you uh, or cheats you or frauds you. I mean, that's kind of like the average citizen looks at a government in that kind of way. You know, they, they, they just want to go about their lives. They don't want to be robbed. They don't want to be murdered. And they don't want to be defrauded. And, you know. Yeah, that's what I call the force of law and order, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if if you have a complete collapse, you're going to have some entity that's going to fill that vacuum that is no longer being uh, filled up by the government, and that will probably be some form of organized crime with people, as you're saying, specialized in, in violence. And, and, and people have a disrespect for violence, but those people are they're they're efficient at it. You know that it's it's what they do, um, mm. and you kind of have to recognize that there's never going to be the situation where a bunch of average people who spend most of their day uh, thinking about common average man tasks are ever going to suddenly pick up a gun or a knife or a sword or something like that and become proficient fighters in like five minutes. Uh, the type of people who dedicate themselves to violence, uh, you don't want to mess with them. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a professional task. Dispensing violence is a professional task. It's not for amateurs. No, and, absolutely. And any professional can outcompete any amateur, so there's no reason for amateurs to even try. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you enter that path, and you usually enter that path by killing somebody and announcing loudly that you killed that person, and if anybody has an issue with that, you will kill them too. Um, you know, that's how you establish, establish your, your reputation, set yourself up in business. But once you start on that path, uh, you're basically uh, almost a different species from, from the rest of the, the people. Mm-hmm. The rest of the people are there to feed you. What they have is yours by definition. You will take it from them as you see fit. will provide for them is uh, if they fall under your protection, because you protect your turf, then anybody who impinges on that turf, another violent entrepreneur such as yourself, will have to answer to you. <laughs> Basically, it makes a monogamous feeding arrangement. You know, I feed off you, no one else can. And so exactly. you, you kind of take the devil you know, um, as long as they're not too rapacious. Uh, you know, it's, Sounds like government. Well, that's exactly <laughs> what a government is. Ultimately, a government does become rapacious. But when they start out, they're... They're a parasitic organism who is specialized in compelling people uh, to follow whatever set of rules have been established. Hmm. 
Well, it's a it's a very standard process that occurs in in history mm-hmm. when when one political system falls apart. Um, what what you have then is what's called the the process of aristocratic formation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. first you start with uh, garden variety thugs, and then eventually they. Uh, they, they 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 become wealthier and, and start dressing better, and <laughs> yeah. get expensive cars, and then extend each know, other they build out. Some palaces, yeah. you know, and and some private jets, and then they they announce that they're kings, yeah. as opposed to thugs, and yeah. eventually they get a parliament. <laughs> yeah, to give the illusion of freedom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you you've not just studied what happened in Russia. I guess you've looked at this phenomenon across time and across countries. You know from that, it's a simple fact that most people either cannot or will not leave. They're not in a position to leave. So, I mean, for Americans looking at who can see what's going on and what's coming down the pipe, what can they realistically do? Uh, Nothing, most of them. This is why I... You know, I, I really don't want to continue doing what I've been doing, writing on, on this and, you know, trying to branch out into various other things. It's because uh, the number of people that I can reach is rather small. Mm. Uh, I do have a faithful audience that's growing over time. Um, what I say does resonate with quite a few people. And I, I get letters from them saying, well, you, I've read you and you've changed my life and I look at the world differently now. So that's gratifying. But on the other hand, I, I don't think that I can really uh, help that many people. Uh, I can help them think in different ways, but yeah. what can I do practically? Very, very little. Okay, so that's, let's take the weight off your shoulders then in terms of predicting what one might do. You've analyzed it and you've described what has happened in other situations where the traditional family slash small community unit has organically grown and formed what you call a resilient community. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you can talk about that for a bit. Well, that's a direction that researching for about a year, and I just uh, put out a, a very limited edition book um, called Communities That Abide, um, just in the U.S., and um, a, few, a few hundred copies that I'll mail out to people. But I'll also publish it as an e-book uh, internationally, uh, so that people will be able to download and, and read it. And it's, it's really about the, uh, the principles, uh, the common principles of uh, small separatist communities, uh, of which there are many in the world, uh, and all sorts of examples from, from small farming villages in Laos to religious communities in the U.S., like the, the, the various Anabaptist groups, the, the Amish, the, 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 the Mennonites and the Hutterites, um, a religious uh, religions or cults, uh, depending on how you look at it, such as the, the Mormons in the U.S., um, various other groups as well. Um, the Gypsies, the Roma, who are insular, um, but number in the millions. Um, and, and it turns out that they all have uh, uh, basically a, a set of principles that they all adhere to, um, all of them. The Jews, too, uh, they're pretty resilient. Well, yeah, the Orthodox Jews are another example. Um, their, their communities are, are quite strong. But they all adhere to a certain set of principles. And, and actually, I was able to boil them down to so-called 13 commandments. They're not really commandments. They're more like recommendations. But they're really just 13 principles that, that uh, 
that are uh, not optional that all of these communities use, um, okay. such as communal, communalization of money, such as nonviolence and refusal to serve in the military, such as um, uh, making sure that they, that they suffer some amount of persecution by setting themselves consciously apart from the surrounding right. community, because lack of persecution means that they have less of a reason to exist. Uh, mm-hmm. Like avoiding becoming wealthy. They, they have to stay somewhat poor, but have ways of burning off their wealth. So, the, you know, the Roma, for instance, they look like poor beggars, but if you, if you ever see how, what happens when they throw a wedding, well, it's mm-hmm. a feast last three days, because that's how they burn off their wealth. Yeah, and there, uh, are, a lot of, there are a lot of examples from older times as well, where if there was an excess crop, I think, they would sacrifice it to the gods, mm-hmm. because it was sort of bad luck, or they knew that it would cause trouble. That's, an, that's another one. Uh, another is that they refuse to be proletarianized. They, they, they refuse to participate in, 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 in wage labor. Uh, they don't use money within the community itself, uh, generally. They pool resources. Um, they, they interact with the outside world as a group, not as individuals. All of those basic principles that are basically, um, what, I, what I ended up with is basically a kit. If you want to start a resilient community, here's how you do it. Hmm. Yeah, the fundamental premise seems to be you start small. And, and you, you stay small. Yeah, exactly. If you, your description of what happened to Iceland is super because you've got these quotes from their president. I think he's still their president that mm-hmm. I'd never read before. And <laughs> obviously they didn't want people to hear too much about it too widely um, but the, the main thing seems to be that Iceland got through having the economic financial gun to its head by being small well yes because uh, they basically could resort to direct democracy mm-hmm. they, they basically the you know the, the amount of uh, individual sovereignty uh, of an individual within society is inversely proportional to the size of the of the society. So an, an Indian voter in India is a midget compared to uh, an Icelander who is a giant. Mm. And can you explain why such communities are better prepared to face a collapse? Well, the smaller the community, the more uh, people know each other face to face and, and uh, trust each other rather than trusting impersonal institutions. Because uh, when when there's a, when when there's when collapse occurs, basically that invalidates a lot of promises and assumptions. So what people used to believe, they no longer do. But they can still trust each other on a personal level. However, if all of their interactions with each other are mediated by various official institutions and commerce, or the institution of money is a fundamental institution, if if that's all they have, then they have nothing. They really just have their friends and their family. If, if they can't make use of those connections that they, personal connections that they have, then they literally have nothing. And if there is this trust within this community, I suppose, you can materialize all the potential complementarity, help, where people put together their skills, their resources, their energy. Is that uh, the idea? 
Well, yes, the idea is to not depend on the outside world for anything that you need to survive. So all of the basics, uh, food, shelter, um, medical, basic medical care, um, uh, companionship, education, um, care of the young, a few other items like that, all of those have to be handled within the community itself based on personal trust, personal relationships. And that makes it resilient. Then the, basically the, the country can fall apart. You can take the whole community, relocate to a different part of the world. Uh, you can change anything, but the community will stay, stay intact. Are there examples of communities that are totally autarcic, I mean totally uh, autonomous, producing 100% of their <coughs> energy, food, water? Well, they don't actually have to do that. They can have barter relationships with other communities. Yeah. So they don't have to be absolute islands of that yeah. sort. Um, the, the, the whole problem is that they do not deal with the outside world as individuals. They, uh, they deal with the outside world as tiny nations. Mm. Uh-huh. What's the optimal size of such community, in your opinion? Is 150 that- people is the maximum. Oh. When you, well, the, the way these communities function is through direct democracy, and all of the really important decisions have to be reached by consensus. So you can imagine how difficult it becomes to reach decisions yeah. by consensus, to basically talk things through until everyone agrees with 150 people. Beyond that, it just basically takes too much time. Mm. So... Um, for instance, the Hutterites, when they reach that number, 150, they split in half. They draw lots to figure out which families stay and which families go. And, and uh, they buy land and they, they set up this new community with uh, 75 members on, on this new plot of land. Um, and they, they maintain links, but, but only for as long as necessary. And after a certain amount of time, if if the new colony colony doesn't fail, if it provides for itself, mm. then it just it's set free. So, just relating that to uh, to the U.S., the demographics in the U.S., that would kind of suggest that people in small communities and rural communities in the U.S. might be in a better position than people in big cities who don't have plots of land, don't have a real sense of a community there. And I'm just imagining a scenario where you know people having the worst time post-collapse would be people who are entirely dependent on the local government or the state or whatever um, in big cities rather than people in local communities who can uh, tend to know each other. And Yeah, you'd think that way. But um, if you look at a lot of uh, communities in the United States, uh, the, the people living there drive long distances to, to work in, in factories or, right. or uh, in, in other establishments. Um, they, they pay taxes on, on, on the land they, they own to uh, local, state, and federal government, which means that they have to make money. They have to participate in the outside economy. Mm. Um, and uh, if they want to build a town to have the population density that uh, is required to have any sort of a reasonable community, then they end up having to pay for a police department and a fire department and all of this other mandated stuff. Yeah. Um, mandated by the government, but not paid for by the government. It's paid for by local taxes. Mm. 
So suddenly that becomes an even more expensive proposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's so um, that's not a way to do it. That's, that's not a way. Small towns in the United States are definitely not the way to build communities of that sort. I've talked this through mm-hmm. with some people who have uh, uh, a lot of experience. Uh, one of them um, uh, had a great deal to do with this place called The Farm in Tennessee, which at, at one point back in the 60s was the single largest hippie commune in the world, mm-hmm. uh, over a thousand people. Uh, another one is uh, currently running a, a place called an interfaith sanctuary, um, and I'll actually be going there next week for a conference. And we, we talked it through, and we decided that the best way to deal with the American environment in, sort of, in terms of setting up a community like that is to basically make it into a religious organization. It doesn't matter if it's a real religion or a fake one. It could be Pastafarianism or something. Mm-hmm. But that gives you the tax-exempt status. And then make it into a nature preserve as well, because then you can be deeded so that there can be no real development happening there. Mm. Um, and it's, it's better if it's minority-owned, because then if people come after you, there'll be lots of organizations defending your rights. Um, and, and so, uh, oh, and historical preservation, because then you, you can um, establish your own um, building standard that cannot be violated. So no matter what anyone does, nobody can come in there and put up some kind of ugly utilitarian structure. So um, those are the four, the four ingredients. That's how you fight it off. Mm. So uh, American politicians are very scared of uh, religious groups yeah. because, uh, you know, the election cycle is pretty short, but the grudges that religious groups develop uh, last forever, last for many generations. So they, they know to be very careful around cults and religious groups. Um, and and they don't don't really uh, try to dominate them at all because there's there's such poor precedents for trying to do that. Except for Waco. Hmm. Well, um, I think they tried yeah, to set an example there, and that backfired. Well, because. yes, uh, that that that's a rather extreme example, but that's the exception that proves the rule. Hmm. Yeah, and along Joe's question, my thought was that it was better to be in a rural environment during a collapse than in a city because in a city you have such a scarcity of resources. There's no land, you cannot grow food, you cannot fish, you cannot hunt, and there's a lot of people who are starving. And starving people are not uh, always the most recommendable, recommendable individuals. So uh, am I mistaken here? Oh, not at all. Uh, I mean, first of all, um, even in a relatively stable situation, um, uh, starting a, a commune in the city is very, very difficult because it, you, you really do need to have the ability to focus on your membership to the exclusion of the outside world. And in the city, there are just too many distractions and it's it's too difficult to come up with a compact living arrangement. Um, you know, the Orthodox Jews do manage to do that, but but, uh, you know, it takes a lot of resources because, you know, they, 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 they can't drive on Sabbath, but they have to go to shul on Sabbath. They have to be able to get there on foot with their children. Mm. So, so they, they buy up houses around where they, they have shul. And, uh, and you, you, on, you know, on, on Sabbath, I lived in, in a neighborhood like that. There, there was, the streets were full of, you know, Hasidic Jews with their kids walking to, to shul. And, and that's how they take over neighborhoods. That's what drives them to, to, to live compactly mm-hmm. in cities. But they're, they're kind of a special case that, that they're able to do that. 
uh, they sacrifice a lot for it. You know, they're, they're not they're not wealthy by by as communities. They're, they're, they're some wealthy individuals, but as communities, they're not wealthy. Hmm. But in general, if if a community wants to provide for itself, it needs land. Yeah, it's it's good to have connections in the city. Um, that's where people come from. That's where you recruit. There's nobody to recruit out there in mm. the wilderness. But but the community itself should definitely have a, a, a locus somewhere um, where there is land. Mm. You say that uh, the best advice, the first advice was uh, to leave the USA. Um, do you think at one point authorities would lock the borders and it would be impossible for U.S. citizens to escape? Well, they're, they're already trying to do that um, to some extent. Uh, so American citizens uh, pay taxes in the U.S. no matter where in the world they live. And even if they never lived in the U.S. So children born to U.S. citizens abroad are supposed to, to pay taxes for their entire life. Wow. And um, if you want to opt out of uh, having an American citizenship, that's a possibility. And more and more people are doing that every year. Uh, it, it's now a few thousand people a year, but it's, it's going up, it's doubling um, because a lot of people find, find this onerous. Also, uh, American citizens have to report on all of their bank accounts in any part of the world. If they don't, they, they, the fees are huge, uh, the fines. Um, and, and so a lot of the wire transfers are, are, are scrutinized. So it's, it's becoming difficult to get money in, in and out. Mm-hmm. All, of the, all of those transfers go to the Federal Reserve and are recorded. Um, so it's, it's the sort of uh, financial panopticon that Americans live in now uh, that they, they just cannot really easily avoid. Um, it, it'll probably come to a point where uh, Americans who uh, uh, are behind on, 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 on their debts will not be allowed to leave the country. I can definitely see where that will happen. Um, it, yeah. it, there's certainly a lot of people who uh, um, get into some kind of uh, you know trouble with the government and their passport is revoked and they can't leave. And at some point, it may turn out that uh, Americans will require an exit visa to leave the country, and uh, the authorities will question the reason um, and scrutinize the person's uh, past to to find out whether it's a, a certain person should be. Given, given permission to leave. Hmm. Uh, certain people who owe a lot of money might be labeled a flight risk based on the fact that they owe a lot of money. Hmm. Yeah. A flight risk to the federal government, to the Federal Reserve, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just want to change topics a little bit because uh, we're getting, um, we're kind of running, running on in time here. I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about Ukraine. Um, mm-hmm. things have been developing there quite quickly and stuff. I mean, and you've spoken about it <clears throat> and written about it on- online already, but has anything changed in your in your general prognosis of where that's going? Well, uh, no, everything is still going in the same direction, which is uh, uh, the United States and, you know, uh, um, uh, the EU, um, is still trying to blame what's going on in, in Ukraine on Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's, they're still making allegations that there, there are Russian special forces in, in eastern Ukraine fermenting revolt, but have not been able to provide any evidence. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's plenty of evidence that there are American mercenaries in, in Ukraine, and uh, uh, there's plenty of evidence that uh, you know, the, the West has, is supporting neo-Nazi groups that are uh, guilty of committing atrocities, such as torching uh, a building full of people mm-hmm. and, and killing those who tried to, to flee mm-hmm. in, in Odessa. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the rhetoric um, is, is really unhelpful so that the people in the East who uh, will not put up with this uh, government that, that, that uh, the Americans managed to install in Kiev, you know, this, uh, you know, banker, um, and, and, and his junta, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that they're la- labeled as pro-Russian separatists. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, how can you be pro-Russian if you're Russian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a given. It's a given, right. And, and then uh, nobody actually manages to, to get through the the idea that these parts of Ukraine that are in open rebellion uh, are part of a non-existent country. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were basically assigned to this entity called Ukraine by Lenin and for a specific reason. So he wanted a Ukraine that was governable. <laughs> so mm-hmm. he, he stuck in a whole bunch of Russian population in with the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm to basically not have to deal with the local languages or any of that and, and uh, lump them all together. Mm. And then, of course, Crimea was lumped in uh, for an even stupider reason, which is Nikita Khrushchev uh, was, it gave it as a gift to his, to his birthplace. Mm. Um, and, and that's, you know, full of Russians. There aren't any Ukrainians there. Um, so all of these things are just basically like, like, not not even mentioned, and what's being talked about is basically some ritualistic incantations, pro-Russian separatists, mm. um, and and uh, then when when atrocities happen, like what happened in Odessa, mm-hmm. dozens of people killed, that doesn't really get on the news at all. No, there's no explanation. Yeah, uh, yeah. I take exception to that pro-Russian thing. Sure, the people are pro-Russian, but I think first and foremost, they're anti, you know, coup-installed fascist kind of government in their country. I mean, any normal person, that would be their major beef, you know what I mean? I mean, your kind of political allegiances, or your ethnic allegiances, uh, I'm second to that, you know? Uh, yes, but you have, to, you have to understand, you know, I, I, I've watched a lot of uh, live coverage, on, on, on the web of events in Donetsk and Lugansk um, and, and Odessa. And these, these people are not strangers to me. They're, they're Russians. Okay. They're just like the people across the border in Russia, mm-hmm. except that they were stuck on the wrong side of the border for 22 years. So they're like Russians from the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like... A bunch of Russians stuck in a time warp. That's what I thought I was seeing. That's, mm-hmm. that's how it struck me. Mm. They, they, they got stuck in a time machine that doesn't work. Yeah. Did you, do you think that, um, 
that the Russians, uh, Putin and his advisors, etc., that they saw this coming and that they had certain plans in place to deal with it before, maybe long before it happened? Uh, no, basically they, they would just, bas- they, they would try to be helpful, believe it or not. Mm. So um, the EU wanted to absorb Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, but, but that really meant bankrupting Ukraine and then selling off everything, including the dirt. Mm. Um, you know, basically these IMF arrangements are just ways of robbing countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the idea was to open up Ukraine as a dumping ground for uh, Western exports uh, with the understanding that Ukraine does not manufacture anything that Europeans want, mm-hmm. that all of their industry is Russia-oriented, yeah. Russia being the biggest trade partner. Okay, so, you know, Yanukovych is not the smartest guy in the world. No. Actually, I think he's borderline idiotic. Mm-hmm. He's just incredibly greedy. Um, and... But he was smart enough to realize that that's just not going to work. So he turned around to to Moscow and said, well, can you give me a better deal? Moscow said, sure, we'll give you a better deal. Here's $15 billion. Here's a a free trade deal as part of the uh, the trade union, what is it called, the the free trade zone Mm -hmm. uh, within CIS. And, And then... The Americans turned around and decided to to uh, to cause a revolution and to overthrow him, which is what they did, and they installed the people that they wanted to install that they named by name. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was certainly a bad turn. Now Putin has played it skillfully and and uh, did nothing illegal in order to annex Crimea, which was a big victory. Uh, and the if you look at Russia's standing in the world, how, how Russia is perceived around the world. Uh, the victory of the Olympics, all those gold medals that the Russians won, followed by the victory in Crimea, where they, they were able to get their ter- territory back without uh, firing a single shot and without breaking a single law. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things have really uh, improved Russia's standing in the world. So if you look at how many people are interested in learning Russian now, mm-hmm. it's amazing. It's really went up. Um, and, and so Putin is definitely the winner there. But when it comes to Eastern Ukraine, I would say that the best outcome is Ukraine becomes sort of Russia's protectorate, but in return and, and won't explode as a result of that, will not turn into uh, Yugoslavia um, with 44 million people and, and nuclear power plants. Um, but in return, the U.S. has to pay and the EU. Mm-hmm. They broke it. They paid to have it fixed. Russia will not pay for the reconstruction of Ukraine, which the West wrecked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, realistically, Washington will not accept those terms. So how do you see things playing out at this point? I think the, I think the fight is between Washington and Brussels. I don't think Russia has much to do with it. Mm. Yeah, there seems to be... They they can afford to sort of sit back and let things unfold, take their course. Yeah, there's a bit of real politic coming in in terms of the EU, and people in the EU uh, have to, you know, make some hard decisions here. And and first and, for, first and foremost, they have to look at the geography and the fact that they're on the same landmass right beside uh, 
Russia and the U.S. is way over there, you know, and, you know, I mean, it's a struggle, definitely, you know, between ideologies and all the ties that the Americans have made with the EU and the EU has made with the U.S., but when it comes down to it, you know, I mean, this is Eurasia, you know, and America is a different continent, you know. Yes, well, the funny thing is that the, the United States perceives itself as the indispensable nation. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out that it's actually the only major dispensable nation that there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a real come down from, you know, the past 30 or 40 or 50 years, you know, when America yeah. ruled the world, you know. Yeah, but I think that there will be certain inflection points that, that will come. For instance, uh, there will be uh, this point of realization where um, – uh, NATO countries will realize that NATO is not going to start World War III and nuclear Armageddon over Estonia. Right. That Estonia is not worth destroying the planet over. Mm-hmm. And at, at that point, you don't have NATO anymore. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, they will realize that Washington is per- perfectly happy to have uh, all of Europe shiver in the dark next winter mm-hmm. by... by actually wrecking things so that so well, that Russia can no longer export gas. And just, and they'll realize so, that, that 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 it's it's in their interest to to switch alli- switch allegiances. Yeah, uh, America America will do that just so it can save face a bit essentially and, and maintain the idea of America uh, as uh, as this uh, benevolent hegemon. Yeah. Well, it's it, in its hour of desperation, the United States is capable of doing uh, massive damage. Yeah. And it's really up to Western Europe to, to realize, uh, you know, which country is behaving in, in a legal and peaceful fashion mm-hmm. and which isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, um, Dimitri, what ideology, if any, exists in Russia today? So communism collapses. What's holding the country together? I mean, well, Putin calls it sovereign democracy. It's a, it's a democratic system where people directly, uh, uh, directly elect a popular leader. And say what you will, but it works. If you look at the popularity, Putin's popularity, um, it's the inverse of Obama's popularity. So Obama's popularity is, what, 20%, something mm-hmm. like that, and Putin's is closer to 80. He's incredibly popular. People directly vote for the president, and it's their president, and the president is answerable to them directly. Um, so that part of it works. And the other part of it is it's a sovereign democracy, which means that it's not amenable to foreign manipulation. Okay. And so um, USAID is not allowed to ferment revolt, as it has in various other countries, in, in, including Venezuela. Um, and um, various other organizations are, are not really allowed to, to operate on, on the same scale as they can in other countries. Uh, there were events like, uh, you know, the, the whole white ribbon thing that happened after the, the last elections. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they airdropped these little white ribbons uh, that were supposed to be symbols of freedom and democracy, not realizing that they're actually symbols of Nazi occupation. You know, they, the, the Nazi collaborators wore white ribbons yeah. during World War II. They kind of forgot that. Right. Uh, but it's funny. Like, oh, no Russian man. would ever do that. So you know, you, you know who thought up that PR campaign. It had yeah. nothing to do with Russia. 
Russians have long memory for that sort of thing. Um, but that all shriveled up. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a, this tiny number of uh, Western-oriented people in Moscow that, uh, that want to make trouble for whatever reasons, but they, they don't actually amount to anything anymore. Big question for me is, is Russia impermeable to the kinds of things that international finance can do? Um, well, if you, if you have uh, oil, natural gas, uranium, palladium, uh, uh, most, of, most of the other resources that the world depends on, then uh, doing nasty financial things to Russia will just basically uh, wreck your own economy. I mean, it, you already see that with the, with the sanctions that the, yeah. the, the U.S. tried to, to impose on Russia. So, um, yeah, they, they, they imposed some sanctions, and, and now the Russians will, won't sell them rocket engines which means that the Pentagon can no longer launch their military satellites. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the Americans are saying that this is a good thing for America because um, it's giving uh, the Americans the, the kick in the butt that they need to become independent and that uh, in space again and to reestablish uh, a, a new um, space shuttle program and stuff. But obviously in a precarious financial situation, that's just going to speed up the demise if they throw billions and billions of dollars at a space uh, program that they don't actually need if they could just <clears throat> get over themselves and cooperate with the Russians. Well, exactly. I mean, the, the reason they started the whole thing is, uh, you know, to save money. Yeah. It's, it's just insane. I think they've just gone insane and they've been insane for a long time. Well, I think it's becoming more apparent now. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really... Uh, uh, this, this sort of ranting and raving uh, is, mm. is, is really becoming apparent now. There's yeah. just a, basically a, a psychotic break, a break with reality that has happened. Well, it's not gonna... Which is what Merkel accused Putin of. Yeah. Well, she, she said, actually, she, she was quoted out of context. I, I don't think that she, she, she meant to say that, uh, you know, his mind snapped or anything like that. And she's been backpedaling furiously. Exactly. Because... I noticed that, yeah. Okay, Dimitri, we're going to kind of wrap it up here. Um, it's been really good um, to have you on. You're uh, a, a fount of, of wisdom and knowledge and in a very unique perspective because, as you say in your book, you know, um, the, the reason that you're able to make these kind of predictions or see these kind of things coming is because you... Uh, because you have these two perspectives, you know, that so few people, few people have, you know, of seeing it happen in Russia and then being able to uh, project that onto the U.S., you know. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, uh, despite what you might think yourself, you still have a lot uh, of good that you can do and a lot of information you can share with everybody about everything, you know. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. So Yeah, uh, keep the faith. All right, I will try. It's been a pleasure. Thank you okay. very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. It was a great pleasure. Thank you.
take many dips and many people to turn a bowl of sour cream into into a bacterial bomb there. So there was no dip at the picnic whatsoever. And the anticipation of projectile vomiting was on everybody's mind, though of course nobody would ever say anything about it. And anticipation, as you know, is is almost as bad as the reality, probably worse. And I'm very sorry that I brought up that subject right now. Anyway, the lawns are looking clean and, and trim, and, and now, for heaven's sake, landscape lighting has found its way into Lake Wobegon. A few people, the Magadenses, have introduced it, and so now everybody will be forced to...